0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Hope you're all having a good weekend. Uh, There was a very interesting ruling that came out earlier this week from the Wisconsin Supreme Court that had to do with the use of ballot drop boxes. And a lot of people are talking about it. There's been a lot of reaction, but the the reality of it is that it had to do with the authority of who uh, permits that rule because absentee voting in and of itself has been allowed for quite some time. And the question is whether these ballot drop boxes can be used when it's the Wisconsin Election Commission that um, permitted by their own rule uh, and not the legislature itself that set up ballot boxes. So the opinion has nothing to do with um, whether it's a good idea, bad idea, uh, or whether it's fair or not fair it has to do with whether who authorizes it because the legislature has to. it's the kind of thing that the legislature has to make a law regarding so fine you know that's that's interesting that's kind of a technicality type issue on the law but uh, immediately it resulted in people claiming that hey this we should go back and look at the 2020 election and this rule should apply and this should Uh, retroactively um, invalidate a bunch of votes. And it's interesting that a lot of people that are making these claims, you know, some of them are lawyers. And I just want to talk about that because recognizing a valid legal argument in the right context and uh, or the inability to do so and trying to apply that argument backwards is one of the things that can get people in trouble. And there's good reason for it. There's public policy reasons for that. You can't um, establish a new rule that changes the way things work or gives guidance, clarification, or whatever going forward, and then expect that people can come and say, oh yeah, I should have made that argument before. Now, it does relate that way to certain constitutional rights, and this isn't necessarily a rights issue. This is more of a allocation of powers issue. Um, But if it's something that relates to one's constitutional Right, and if the the court, either the Wisconsin Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, makes some kind of bright line rule that is designed to apply directly to the constitutionality of you know one's rights, then yes, there are ways that one could retroactively say, hey, this rule should have applied in this other situation. But the rationale behind that, by the way, is that the Constitution or at least constitutional principles always exist. They were always there to begin with. And this interpretation is simply looking at the words that are already there. So again, when you hear people talking about being a, an originalist or textualist, you know, the balls and strikes type of uh, justice, what they mean by that is the words are already there and a ruling shouldn't affect um, what the words say. You know, so the interpretation is something that goes, adds layers to it, but doesn't uh, change the Constitution itself. So say, for example, there's a a ruling that changes the way the court should interpret a particular Fourth Amendment search and seizure type issue. And they say, okay, in this particular case that reaches that appellate level, they make a ruling and that ruling is going to relate to what the Fourth Amendment says, right? And and based on whatever particular scenario came up, uh, and they announced this, if it's something that we would call a bright line rule, then yes, it can apply retroactively to cases that are already pending. It isn't something that necessarily had to be, um, you know, the court's view of the law at the time. Now, there's a split of opinion on why, how, and when that occurs. And I said, Let's talk about some public policy issues here. Uh, the court is always mindful. When I say the court, I mean any court. It is always mindful of the impact of a particular decision on how things are conducted going forward, and that's partly why we have all these other layers of analysis and it's extremely complicated. I mean, I really give my hat hat hats off to those lawyers that practice in the constitutional arena because. Having a sense of of the spirit behind the law, as well as where the courts are going, I've tried, you know, I've tried to keep up with it, but it's extremely um, complicated, as I said. But getting back to this ruling, um, one of the things that people have claimed is that going backwards, this should apply to the twenty twenty election, because there were um, those absentee drop boxes being used. And there's an argument that's being made that that should nullify nullified all those votes. Okay, well that's different because this is not an interpretation of an individual constitutional right. This is basically a, um, a re-examination of where the authority came from and not saying that they're illegal, it's just that the authority that uh, vested this particular situation was the wrong one. <laughs> and that it should have been done, but just differently is all they're saying. So this phrase is something that in the law, we call latches, L-A-C-H-E-S. And it's kind of a weird word, but what it means is that if you don't take action when you should have, or, or really could have, then you're waiving your argument. And that's one of these very important public policy type things to try to keep uh, order in the in the court system. I mean, it's really that simple, because <clears throat> there has to be some standard where you limit what one can claim and what they can do. Otherwise, there would be chaos in the system. So, whenever you hear a lawyer talk about public policy considerations that usually means that they're looking beyond um, what the law says but things that the justices would worry about if uh, a particular ruling uh, what the what the ramifications are I should say and people say that when it comes to you know certain traffic stops and if, if it changes the way things happen now this United States Supreme Court has been making rulings that really Um, don't take those types of things into account. I mean, all over the place. There's been rulings, you know, surprising, very surprising rulings in terms of being willing to to, uh, upset the balance of how things are. But back to this issue of latches. You can't go in and say, hey, this ruling that you made now, uh, I was in that same situation, you know, two years ago, and I should have made that argument then, and it should have applied. Well, when the argument was made, the, it was made, actually, the same argument was made, except that the ruling at that time in each of the court cases was that latches applied and somebody waited too long because you can't, you can't wait and see what the result is before you take legal action to preserve your rights. And that's, that's a really important concept because that applies everywhere in the law. Um, I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody enters into a plea agreement, and they enter a plea of guilty to a charge. And then what typically happens is there has to be a pre-sentence report or character evidence gathered, and then there's a sentencing date on a different date. So someone would say on you know the first of the month, enter a plea, but they'll come back at the end of the month uh, for sentencing. Sometimes the person's in custody, sometimes they're not. But when that sentencing occurs at a later date, there's kind of a watershed moment as far as how someone's rights apply if they wanted to reconsider or withdraw that plea. So in other words, there's a difference before sentencing or after sentencing. You can't, well, you can, you still can move to withdraw the plea, but the point is it's much harder by definition to do so if it's after sentencing, because they don't want people to wait around and see what their sentence is. And if they like the sentence, they won't try to withdraw their plea. But if they don't like it, they will, because that's not supposed to be a reason to withdraw one's plea. So <laughs> you can't, this is a similar argument that, well, okay, we didn't want to challenge anything at that time because we didn't know if we were going to win or lose. You, you can't do that. That's latches right there. Which means you're waving it, and it kind of makes sense to apply that. It's it's an old uh, type of law that goes back like before our country had its own constitution. The concept of latches, um, in fact, it's kind of an old old timey sounding word, isn't it? <laughs> but what it means is, yeah, you you can't sit back and wait uh, you, when you have an action that has to be pursued, when, and you have to preserve your rights in order to make that argument, then there is a, a time frame uh, within which you have to operate. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the concept of waiting too long to, to make a claim that you have a certain right. And when we, we talk about latches, we're talking about something that's outside the realm of a Uh, statute of limitations. So let me explain what that is, if you've never heard that before. The The statute of limitations is a term that's used to describe the maximum period of time that a particular, usually prosecutorial right, attaches. So in other words, how long after an incident occurs does the state have the right to prosecute somebody for it. It puts a time limit on things based on well, it's kind of arbitrary. The legislature sets what the statute of limitations is on in individual cases. It varies based on what it is that you're talking about. A simple statute of limitations for a typical felony, six years, but that can be extended beyond that. So this is another reflection of that same concept that we, we see referenced. It's a different different word and phrase we're using because it is in fact statutory, not conceptual. Latches is conceptual. The statute of limitations is statutory. It says in the law that the legislature made that there's a maximum period of time that the prosecution has the right to prosecute something. So think about that. Why why is that the case? Why is there a rule out there that says, hey, uh prosecutors, you have until a certain date to commence an action. That's public policy reflected in that statute. So think about that. It makes it so if there's something that's under investigation and the police are aware of it and the prosecutors are aware of it, uh, after a certain period of time goes by people should be able to assume that there won't be anything happening as a result of that particular investigation. It's also useful to have an outer limit for when something can be commenced, when it comes to the quality of the evidence, or of course how the human memory fades over time. So, yeah, there's very good reasons for if somebody sits back and waits too long in order to start something, the the right to do so diminishes over time. And we're just talking about a couple of different ways that that can happen. Before the break, I was talking about this scenario that's actually very common in the court systems, particularly in the criminal context, when somebody moves to withdraw their plea. And that absolutely can be done. But this same concept of waiting too late applies in the sense that the uh, the courts have viewed that procedure, I'm sure you can imagine, <laughs> with a, a mind's eye towards not allowing it in most situations because... The order in our world would cease to exist if someone could just withdraw their plea from a plea agreement easily. It's it's not supposed to be easy. Why? <laughs> because they, there's an, a need to have binding effect on decisions people make. And that's always kind of fascin- fascinated me because this is Nearly always, somebody who isn't trained in the law has a lawyer assisting them, and there's all sorts of other parameters that are putting pressure on someone that has to make a decision, a pretty monumental decision that affects the rest of their life. And oftentimes, plea agreements are struck in the hallway on the way into the courtroom, and it's extremely common that someone feels that they didn't have the time to fully think about it or talk about it or ask enough questions and again it's extremely common that after a plea is entered that someone would have some second thoughts about it I mean you wouldn't be human if you didn't it's such an it's a very very common thought especially when you have to wait for the sentence to happen so you know we have to acknowledge that people that aren't trained in the law themselves And the fact that a lawyer is supposed to be guiding somebody through that process carefully. (laughs) And we imagine that that happens in a, in a controlled way, spread out over a series of meetings. And that, that is the way I try to do things, by the way. I mean, every client I have, I make a point of not having that person have to make an instantaneous decision that we haven't had time to talk about because I know that's the, that's one of the biggest flaws in our system. Is that when things happen precipitously and someone doesn't really have the time to contemplate what it is that they're signing up for when they make a decision, um, that's just not not good for anybody or the system. But of course, acknowledging that it does happen, um, for some reason, we have a rule that makes it so it's really hard to take your to change your mind. And that's why during a plea colloquy, the judge asks somebody about, you know, 50 questions about why, what they're doing. Do they know what they're doing? Do they have anything to drink that day? Are they taking any medications? Do they get enough sleep? Do they read and write English? There's a lot of questions that a judge asks in every, every single case where somebody is making that decision to move forward with a plea agreement. In fact, it's some some say this, and I think it is true. Sometimes it takes longer somebody to plead guilty to something than to not and to have the you know a full-blown trial (laughs) you know as far as how much uh, time and effort is required uh, on everyone's part to make that happen that being said this this public policy sort of uh, twist on whether someone should or shouldn't be allowed to withdraw their plea is designed subtly to discourage people from uh making that decision and that doesn't seem fair it's in other words the precedent that goes up to the supreme the court of appeals and the supreme court and by the way all the way up to the u.s supreme court on this issue is that uh, you know on the one hand the, the standard is any fair reason any fair and just reason should be allowed. In other words, if someone wants to withdraw their plea and there is any fair and just reason to do so, they're supposed to be allowed to. Why is it written that way? Because it would seem grossly unfair if it was just sort of locked in forever and there's no remedy available. However, what you see in operation in the courts and their interpretation of this provision all the way up is that it's, it's really difficult, even though with that language, any fair and just reason, any fair and just reason, the analysis of what is fair and what is just is something that consumes a great deal of pages in our case law books. And you would think that the word fair is something that's supposed to apply, like, hey, it's fair for, for, for the defendant, and it's fair for the court. Well, that's what they do. The prosecutors come in and say, not fair. We were ready to go to trial. And now he wants trial when he just said a month ago that he doesn't want one. It really ignores the reality of the situation. But again, done any other way, it invites pure chaos. Because then there would be, theoretically, manipulation of the court system. One would You'd see people pleading guilty all the time and then withdrawing their pleas easily all the time. And it would just disrupt the system so it's better i suppose for these quote-unquote public policy reasons to have it be difficult for someone to do that now i was talking about that watershed moment when someone's sentenced and how there's a, a preference for somebody to have changed their mind if they're going to before they get sentenced so that is true if that someone waits till after sentencing and then they say, hey, I want to withdraw my plea. It's presumed that the reason they want to withdraw the plea is because they don't like what the sentence is. And that's not an allowed reason. That's not permitted. You can't say, oh, I I was hoping for a different sentence, but I got a bad one. So now I want to go back and change my plea. In fact, the major component of a plea colloquy in court when a judge is asking a defendant if they know what they're doing, and if they want to proceed is, making sure that person knows that the judge doesn't have to follow a plea agreement. The judge could, if he or she felt it appropriate, sentence somebody up to the maximum penalty and someone's required to acknowledge all that verbally, out loud, on the record before a judge accepts any plea. So it's, you know, it's sort of on that basis where we take so much time, you know, time, it takes, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes to ensure that someone says all the right things under those circumstances in order for the plea to be, you know, ironclad, so to speak. And then uh, when someone doesn't get what they were hoping for, and then they say, oh yeah, I had a reason to withdraw my plea. It's more than just the fact that I don't like my sentence. It's other stuff too. And here, here's why. So yes, the, the court will apply... You know, a, a, an argument similar to latches, where if you waited too long. And by the way, a bad sentence isn't a reason to withdraw a plea. That's not a basis. It simply isn't. So the argument that when it has to be something else, and it's presumed that if the sentence is bad and one waited till after the sentence happened, that that's not legit, so to speak. All right, I know that it was complicated, but we'll be back right after these messages. So during that last segment, I'm sure some might perceive that I was at least implying that our system would be better if we just freely, freely allowed claims like, hey, I want to go back in time and change things and start over again, are um, grossly unfair. And you're, you're right. I mean, I do feel that way. Um, But it's, it's complicated because in order to make things work, sometimes you gotta take into consideration the fact that it's just not a workable solution to think about it any other way. And it it never, you never see decisions that come right out and say that, you know, like, Hey, any other way of looking at this would, would be really hard. (laughs) So let's do it the easy way. Um, but yeah, there is the spirit of that in a lot of the things that that are interpreted in law. So before the break, we were talking about the concept of latches as well as the statute of limitations and the um, very high bar that one has to hurdle in order to withdraw their plea and that it gets even higher when after sentencing. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about... Uh, that whole process whereby convictions are achieved. and I know you've heard this on my show before and you know John has always also commented on this that the trial tax is something that um, you know, we defense lawyers have coined that term to describe what happens when somebody goes to trial. In other words, there's a penalty applied and I don't mean financial. I mean, there's the risk that one receives a higher sentence automatically if they go to trial. And sometimes this quote-unquote trial tax is a tax that's applied by a penalty that's applied by the prosecutor. Now, just having a discussion the other day with a colleague of mine about this whole concept and whose uh, hands this power is in, and if you really look at it, it certainly raises the question of you know have we in our in our efforts to deal with what's what's pragmatic in the law handed far too much power over to one branch of government the executive branch of government right so it was particularly in the context of how in federal court sentencing guidelines as well as mandatory minimums exist by the way did you know that there's a very um important organization called families against mandatory minimums out there and if you don't know who that is check it out because it's been in existence for quite some time and they actually do a very effective job of raising public awareness about what's wrong with mandatory minimums and as you can tell families against mandatory minimums this this isn't necessarily a you know pro-defense or you know anti-prosecution type organization it's based on judicial independence is what it is. But going back to this concept, um, when you do have something like a mandatory minimum that is wielded as a source of power by the prosecution, I mean, think about that. When there's a mandatory minimum, that's statutory. It's something that the legislature decided. So here's how the three branches of government deal with this issue. The legislature says, in such and such type of case, and it's almost always a, a sex-type case, you know, that's just how it is, There, the judge cannot sentence somebody to under a certain amount of prison time. And typically, you know, depending on what it is, the, the big one out there is that there's a mandatory minimum of 25 years for certain types of offenses. And then there's a mandatory minimum of 35 for, for others. Interestingly, first-degree intentional homicide carries no mandatory minimum because it's a mandatory life sentence if one's found guilty of all the aggravated uh, circumstances that comply. To that. But there are many types of, you know, flat out homicide charges that don't have a mandatory minimum of any kind. Someone could be convicted of certain degrees of homicide and have no sentence, period. But someone can engage in another type of act, and the legislature has decided that judges can't go below a certain amount of of sentence. So that concept in and of itself has always fascinated me that the legislature is stepping, putting its foot in the door to what the judicial function is. I mean, if you think about how three branches of government are supposed to be coexistent and co equal, doesn't that seem to step over the line, right? To, you know, in, in, in especially since it's future cases, we're not talking about an individual case. It's like in the future, when these things come up, we want judges to not be able to go below 25 years in this type of situation. And then the the co-equal, co-existing branch of government says, oh, okay, well, I have to respect what the legislature says here because they're the legislature. I'm just a judge. Then the executive branch that is given the power to decide which charges apply. And let me expand on that a little bit because there's usually a great deal of misunderstanding about who decides what somebody gets charged with. It's not the police. Um, People think that it's not the judge at all. It's the DA, the district attorney decides what charges will be applied. So again, there's a little bit of a spillover from what the legislature decides and, and what they want prosecutors to do. And you've probably seen some headlines very recently on this whole issue relating to the fact that the district attorney here in Sheboygan County announced that he intends to prosecute people who violate the existing abortion law. Um, To my knowledge, he's the only DA in the state that has had a press conference and stated publicly that that's his intention. And the natural question that was raised is, well, wait a minute, What we have laws relating to adultery and other stuff that simply aren't enforced and haven't been enforced for, you know, 100 years or something. Well, not that long, but um, so it shows that there is discretion. So this issue of discretion, does a district attorney have discretion to decide what charges to pursue, even if the law is clear on what it is? And this adultery example is... A very clear one uh, there was a, a district attorney out in I think it was either Adams or Juneau County that made headlines it was about 20 years ago when he filed charges against um, <laughs> it was actually somebody who I believe ran against him for DA and he had the person arrested and put in jail awaiting felony adultery charges <clears throat> Now, you should know what adultery means, but um, coming from a background where these things get prosecuted frequently in the military, I mean, um, it's probably worth mentioning that it applies to anybody that has an intimate relationship with anybody else if either of those two people in the process are married at the time it happens to somebody else. So one might think, oh, When you use the word adulterer, adulteress, you think about the the person who's married. That's not necessarily true. It it applies also to someone who is the other person. Both people are engaging in that crime, and that's a crime that's on the books. Um, Getting back to this issue where the DA out in one of those western counties had his political adversary charged with an offense um, of adultery, there was a lot of um, discussion about first of all whether that law should be in the books but also is this something that is an appropriate exercise of discretion so this concept that if it's there you must charge it because that's what the legislature wanted is in conflict with the fact that the legislature also created all these mandatory minimum offenses to give the prosecution the power to potentially charge those things in order to facilitate a plea of guilty to something else. And that sounds kind of sinister, but it's been acknowledged in precisely that way in court rulings that have gone all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Let me say that again so you understand. The the nuclear weapon, so to speak, that a prosecutor holds, the ability to apply a mandatory minimum is the discretion that the legislature intended that prosecutor to have. Because when people raise this and say, that's too much power, it's something that isn't good for justice. Because when it's there for the purpose of saying, hey, if you don't plead guilty to what you're charged with, I'm going to charge you with something worse. And you're going to have to serve much more time in prison so you see the problem there. It's skirting, getting around uh, what justice itself. I mean, it's it's bypassing the issues, and it's more about fear than anything. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. I was on a roll there for right before the break, but I've calmed down. I've taken a sip of my coffee. I've uh, stopped hyperventilating. But <laughs> the thing I was getting so worked up about is. This concept that the, 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 the interpretation of laws when, when a prosecutor says, hey, the legislature said this is the law. It's my job to enforce that law to the letter of the law. Um, and that there have been certain people claiming that that means there's no discretion as it relates to the abortion laws that are on the books. Um, That after the functional reversal of Roe versus Wade are now in effect without federal protection of those privacy rights. So as we've all been trying to figure out what this means going forward, legally speaking, um, you know, this particular district attorney comes out and says, hey, um, I'm going to enforce the law because that's my job. But I was comparing that before the break with the fact that there are many things that the legislature does that are designed deliberately to give the prosecution more power. And when it comes to the bargaining table, when it comes to what we've been talking about to this entire show, the efficiencies of the process. And I I hate using that word in the context of criminal, quote unquote, justice, that there should be efficiencies that are considered. But yeah. That's exactly right. (laughs) So a lot of these laws are created to make it so there are fewer cases that take up the time in court. So think about that balance as well. This always fascinates me when we're in court and in some counties in our state, it's, it's different than others. But by and large, there are a lot of unhappy people in court when it's busy, when there's, You know, you've got to wait a couple of hours for your case to be heard. And probably the unhappiest person in the entire courtroom when that happens is the judge. Because the judge has no authority whatsoever to decide how many cases get charged in a particular county. The defense has no ability to affect that either. So, really, there's one agency that's responsible for when we have the courts overcrowded, when we have overcrowding of prisons, when we have, when the efficiencies come into play, it's solely in the hands of the DA's office. And I, I often wonder this, that when someone's arriving in court, it may be a fairly minor issue and they have to wait for five or six or sometimes more hours just for a simple hearing because it, the court is so congested. And someone in that situation should realize that it's the DA. That is making decisions to charge anything and everything, no matter what the quality of the evidence is, to be uh, overtly and loudly tough on crime for the sake of political advantage. You know, that's, we all know, uh, hopefully we all know at this point that it's not that simple. You can't solve society's problems by hitting people with a bigger, heavier hammer. Um... That's just not logical. I mean, a kindergartner might believe things that way, but not someone who went to law school and got elected and is responsible for, really, the whole uh, community and and how law enforcement relates to that community. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. But it's also, the answer is not to simply say everything I can possibly uh, charge because the legislature said this thing whatever you're talking about is against the law it's mandatory that a that a conviction and sentence be sought by the way even to the exclusion of the wishes of one of one that might be designated as a quote-unquote victim and uh, you know i'm not going to go down that path i always do i'll do it on some other show but it's just crazy ironic to me that we have a, a constitutional amendment, I mean, a change to our state constitution that enhanced the rights of people designated as victims in criminal cases so that they're on a par or very close to being on par with those of the defendant also guaranteed constitutionally. Yet, what it really means is that the prosecutor gets to use that provision when it's to their advantage or convenience, but uh, they don't have to. Um, take those things into account when it doesn't match with their uh, agenda. I mean, honestly, most of the cases that involve any kind of relationship issue that results in a domestic, you know, violence sort of uh, allegation, you know, having this process go through the court system really prevents people from working them those issues out on their own. Oftentimes there's you know alcohol or mental health issues that are involved that led to whatever the singular outburst is. And then, I mean, a very large percent of the time, everyone regrets that someone got arrested. And then you'll, you'll see very often someone who's designated as a victim constantly trying to come into court and say, look, if, I'm, if my rights, if you're supposed to be taking things that I care about into account... I want this case dismissed, and they're like, oh, no, 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 you're a victim, you have rights, we have respect for you, meaning, uh, shut up and do what we tell you to do because you're a victim, you know, (laughs) that's really what it turns into. Anyway, I'm going very far afield here. Let me get back to the point, and that is, um, as we're talking about this immense power that, uh, the prosecution has. So let me break this down just so, so perhaps you understand it a little bit better. This is typically a concept where, as, a, as we were talking about before, the legislature, the lawmakers, the people that are elected, to speak on our behalf as our representatives. So the legislators are actually supposed to be you and me, but we can't have all of us making the laws, so that's why we have this representative democracy, whether they're um, as part of Congress the U.S. Senate or the State Assembly or State Senate, these are people that are elected to be our voice. That's who they are. They're us. I mean, functionally speaking, that's us. So do you and I, did we come up with concepts concept that, so that we can make it easier for the judicial system to try and struggle along uh, functionally uh, by having these... Re- huge sentences that, that ma- apply as a mandatory situation. I've never met a judge that's a fan of mandatory minimum sentencing or, for that matter, guidelines that apply like they do in federal court. Because, I mean, number one, it's, it's like telling the judge uh, you don't matter and somebody the other two branches of government are going to take that away from you and the judge's role in the whole process is simply to utter the words that are required you know, by the other decision makers in this process. I know I'm being a little bit facetious, but going back to the fact that the representatives of the will of the people are making these laws. So on behalf of you and me, there are lawmakers that decide they're going to equip the prosecutor with this very, very heavy ammunition in the process. And also at the same time, tie the hands of the judge who's also elected by the way um, and the DA is elected everyone's elected right? So what that does is it makes it so you've heard the expression the tail wags the dog and that's absolutely applicable here. countless times that I'm not only work that I've had with with my clients but also that I'm aware of being a uh, you know a, an active leader in the defense community, this concept that uh, what one makes a decision based on fear of the consequences uh, by exercising their rights. And that's really what it comes down to, and that's what's really wrong with this whole process. It's all fine and dandy to say, hey, yes, the will of the people is being reflected by being tough on crime and making mandatory minimums. And that the supposed effect of that is that no one would dare commit such a crime because they know that you'll go to prison for a mandatory minimum of 25 years which by the way nobody does know that <laughs> until you know it's too late but going back to how this the worst thing that happens in our justice system is when someone says i hate it i absolutely hate it when i hear about this happening cuz it shakes my faith in whether this system is ever going to work right when someone says i took the deal because the prosecutor was threatening that I, they would they would have this mandatory minimum apply. And that can work both ways where somebody isn't willing to enter a plea to an existing charge and the prosecutor comes along and says, "Guess what? We're going to add another one that carries a mandatory minimum or it starts with the mandatory minimum charge and the prosecutor says, "Well, we're only um, amend it to a different charge that doesn't carry a mandatory minimum if the person pleads guilty." So, you know, wow, this is just <laughs> Um, dealing with that issue and and the questions, the natural questions I'm sure you can imagine that a client has under those circumstances. And they say, look, I'm not guilty. I didn't do this. However, I don't want to run the risk that a jury won't believe me or that a judge won't believe me and then have to be forced to go to prison for a much longer period of time. It's a terrible influence in the process. It really is. That's all the time we have for this week, but please do tune in next week as you can. Every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.